Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 35. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'll start us off today with more of my grandparents' story of homesteading in southeastern Wyoming. This is one of my favorite sections because it talks about my father's birth. His name was Lawrence. On December 3, 1925, the Wheatland Times published this report. The headline read, Event of Historical Import Eventuates Sunday in Hudson Valley. And then the article went on to say, While the first white child born in Wheatland may be a matter for future historians to battle over, and the first born in Hudson Valley may also be a matter for debate and research by recorders of times times to come, there is one historical fact that the Wheatland Times wishes to put on record while it is still fresh, and that is that the first twins born in the Hudson Valley and in the Eagle's Nest territories were born Sunday morning, November 29th, to Mr. and Mrs. Ralph Carey. Both are boys, and both are reported to be in first-class health. The twins were named Lawrence Harvey and Lester Ralph. They were not strong babies, and since the November weather was bitterly cold, many anxious hours were spent caring for them. One neighbor, considering the Carey's financial situation, made a special trip to visit, and before leaving asked for one of the babies. Unthinkable. Mary was quite ill and weak for some time. Helen and Nellie, ages 10 and 8 years of age, did much of the housework. A woman was hired to help out as well. Mom was really missed by her family, and it was a happy day when she was up and about and doing her good cooking again. Their last child, Kenneth Kenneth Dale, was born in 1930. This delivery was not as traumatic for Mary, and she recovered rapidly. In 1927, Ralph bought a house from a farmer about 10 miles away. It had four rooms, two downstairs and two upstairs. He moved the house with a team of horses, dragging it on logs across the fields. He also bought a one-room house uh, from a place about three miles away. He moved the old two-room house they'd been living in out to be used as a granary and put this one-room and the four-room house together. Now the Carries had a five-room house with an upstairs. One room was not finished for several years, but it made a handy storeroom. One wonders how many men today would expend such an effort. It seems an impossible task to feed and clothe a family of ten, put a home together for their comfort, and be always eager to plan and dream for another year, another crop, more improvements, and a better environment for those who look to him for security. When Leonard and Frank were about 15 years old, they were able to work for other farmers. They had a desire to be out on their own and have money to spend. One of the first items Leonard bought was a linoleum rug for his mother's kitchen floor. Mary was very proud of the pretty floor and the way it could be cleaned so easily. Both Leonard and Frank helped to buy a Maytag washer with a gasoline motor. This was like a bit of paradise. How many hours Mary had spent scrubbing clothes on a washboard, then for a time on a hand-powered washing machine. Now her wash days were almost fun. Of course, the water for washing still was carried in pails from the well and heated on the coal stove in a boiler. But oh, how she loved that Maytag. During the time the Careys lived on the farm, the area became quite well populated. Farmhouses were on nearly every section of land. But many people were forced out because of crop failures brought on by hail, wind, and drought. Some gave up the struggle against the elements and mortgage payments and moved on to try some other place. 
1947, Mary's father passed away, leaving her a small inheritance. This was used to purchase an additional 320 acres of land from a neighbor, who was, like others, giving up and moving on. I'm going to read a short story by Jack London. He wrote it in 1906, and it's called Brown Wolf. She had delayed, because of the dew-wet grass, in order to put on her overshoes, and when she emerged from the house, found her waiting husband absorbed in the wonder of a bursting almond bud. She sent a questioning glance across the tall grass and in and out among the orchard trees. Where's Wolf? she asked. He was here a moment ago. Walt Irving drew himself away with a jerk from the metaphysics and poetry of the organic miracle of blossom and surveyed the landscape. He was running a rabbit the last time I saw of him. Wolf! Wolf! Here, Wolf! she called as they left the clearing and took the trail that led down through the waxen-belled manzanita jungle to the country, uh, county road. Irvine thrust between his lips the little finger of each hand and lent to her efforts a shrill whistling. She covered her ears hastily and made a wry grimace. My, for a poet, delicately attuned and all the rest of it, you can make unlovely noises. My eardrums are pierced. You out-whistle Orpheus. I was about to say a street Arab, she concluded severely. Posey does not prevent one from being practical. At least it doesn't prevent me. Mine is no futility of genius that can't sell gems to the magazines. He assumed a mock extravagance and went on. I am no attic singer, no ballroom warbler. And why? Because I am practical. Mine is no squalor of song that cannot transmute itself with proper exchange value into a flower-crowned cottage, a sweet mountain meadow, a grove of redwoods, an orchard of 37 trees, one long row of blackberries and two short rows of strawberries, to say nothing of a quarter of a mile of gurgling brook. Oh, that your song transmutations were as successful, she laughed. Name one that wasn't. Those two beautiful sonnets that you transmuted into the cow that was accounted the worst milker in the township. She was beautiful, he began. But she didn't give milk, Madge interrupted. But she was beautiful now, wasn't she? He insisted. And here's where beauty and utility fall out, was her reply. And there's the wolf. From the thicket-covered hillside came a crashing of underbrush. And then, 40 feet above them, on the edge of the sheer wall of rock, appeared a wolf's head and shoulders. His braced forepaws dislodged a pebble, and with sharp-pricked ears and peering eyes, he watched the fall of the pebble till it struck at their feet. Then he transferred his gaze and with open mouth laughed down at them. You wolf, you! And you blessed wolf, the man and woman called out to him. The ears flattened back and down at the sound, and the head seemed to snuggle under the caress of an invisible hand. They watched him scramble backward into the thicket, then proceeded on their way. Several minutes later, rounding a turn in the trail where the descent was less precipitous, he joined them in the midst of a miniature avalanche of pebbles and loose soil. He was not demonstrative. A pat and a rub around the ears from the man, and a more prolonged caressing from the woman, and he was away down the trail in front of them, gliding effortlessly over the ground in true wolf fashion. In build and coat and brush, he was a huge timber wolf, but the lie was given to his wolfhood by his color and markings. There the dog unmistakably advertised itself. No wolf was ever colored like him. He was brown, deep brown, red-brown, an orgy of browns. Back and shoulders were a warm brown that paled on the sides and underneath to a yellow that was dingy because of the brown that lingered in it. The white of the throat and paws and the spots over the eyes was dirty because of the persistent and ineradicable brown, while the eyes themselves were twin topazes, golden and brown. The man and woman loved the dog very much. 
Perhaps this was because it had been such a task to win his love. It had been no easy matter when he first drifted in mysteriously out of nowhere to their little mountain cottage. Footsore and famished, he had killed a rabbit under their very noses and under their very windows, and then crawled away and slept by the spring at the foot of the blackberry bushes. When Walt Irvine went down to inspect the intruder, he was snarled at for his pains, and Madge likewise was snarled at when she went down to present, as a peace offering, a large pan of bread and milk. A most unsociable dog, he proved to be, resenting all their advances, refusing to let them lay hands on him, menacing them with bare fangs and bristling hair. Nevertheless, he remained, sleeping and resting by the spring and eating the food they gave him, after they set it down at a safe distance and retreated. His wretched physical condition explained why he lingered, and when he had recuperated after several days' sojourn, he disappeared. And this would have been the end of him, so far so far as Irvine and his wife were concerned, had not Irvine at that particular time been called away into the northern part of the state. Biting long on the train near to the line between California and Oregon, he chanced to look out of the window and saw his unsociable guest sliding along the wagon road, brown and wolfish, tired yet tireless, dust covered and soiled with 200 miles of travel. Now, Irvine was a man of impulse, a poet. He got off the train at the next station, bought a piece of meat at a butcher shop, and captured the vagrant on the outskirts of the town. The return trip was made in the baggage car, and so Wolf came a second time to the mountain cottage. Here he was tied up for a week and made love to by the man and woman. But it was very circumspect lovemaking. Remote and alien as a traveler from another planet, he snarled down their soft-spoken love words. He never barked, and all the time they had him, he was never known to bark. To win him became a problem. Irvine liked problems. He had a metal plate made on which was stamped, Return to Walt Irvine, Glen Allen, Sonoma County, California. This was riveted to a collar and strapped about the dog's neck. Then he was turned loose, and promptly he disappeared. A day later came a telegram from Mendocino County. In 20 hours, he had made over 100 miles to the north and was still going when captured. He came back by Wells Fargo Express, was tied up three days, and was loosed on the fourth and lost. This time he gained southern Oregon before he was caught and returned. Always, as soon as he received his liberty, he fled away, and always he fled north. He was possessed of an obsession that drove him north, the homing instinct, Irvine called it, after he had expended the selling price of a sonnet in getting the animal back from northern Oregon. Another time, the brown wanderer succeeded in traversing half the length of California, all of Oregon, and most of Washington before he was picked up and returned collect. A remarkable thing was the speed with which he traveled. Fed up and rested, as soon as he was loosed, he devoted all his energy to getting over the ground. On the first day's run, he was known to cover as high as 150 miles, and after that he would, he would average 100 miles a day until caught. He always arrived back lean and hungry and savage, and always departed fresh and vigorous cleaving his way northward in response to some prompting of his being that no one could understand. But at last, after a futile year of flight, he accepted the inevitable and elected to remain at the cottage where first he had killed a rabbit and slept by the spring. Even after that, a long time elapsed before the man and woman succeeded in patting him. It was a great victory, for they alone were allowed to put hands on him. He was fastidiously exclusive, and no guest at the cottage ever succeeded in making up to him. A low growl greeted such approach. If anyone had the hardihood to come nearer, the lips lifted, the naked fangs appeared, and the growl became a snarl, a snarl so terrible and malignant that it awed the stoutest of them, as it likewise awed the farmer's dogs that knew ordinary dog snarling but had never seen wolf snarling before. He was without antecedents. 
His history began with Walt and Madge. He had come up from the South, but never a clue did they get of the owner from whom he had evidently fled. Mrs. Johnson, their nearest neighbor, and the one who supplied them with milk, proclaimed him a Klondike dog. Her brother was burrowing for frozen pay streaks in that uh, that far country, and so she constituted herself an authority on on the subject. But they did not dispute her. There were the tips of wolf's ears, obviously so severely frozen at some time that they would never quite heal again. Besides, he looked like the photographs of the Alaskan dogs they saw published in magazines and newspapers. They often speculated over his past and tried to conjure up, from what they had read and heard, what his Northland life had been. That the Northland still drew him, they knew, for at night they sometimes heard him crying softly, and when the north wind blew and the bite of frost was in the air, a great restlessness would come upon him, and he would lift a mournful lament which they knew to be the long wolf howl. Yet he never barked. No provocation was great enough to draw from him that canine cry. Long discussion they had during the time of winning him as to whose dog he was. Each claimed him, and each proclaimed loudly any expression of affection made by him. But the man had the better of it at first, chiefly because he was a man. It was patent that Wolf had no experience with women. He did not understand women. Madge's skirts were something he never quite accepted. The swish of them was enough to set him a bristle with suspicion, and on a windy day she could not approach him at all. On the other hand, it was Madge who fed him. Also, it was she who ruled the kitchen, and it was by her favor, and her favor alone, that he was permitted to come within that sacred precinct. It was because of these things that she bade fair to overcome the handicap of her garments. Then it was that Walt put forth special effort, making it a practice to have Wolf lie at his feet while he wrote, and between petting and talking, losing much time from his work. Walt won in the end, and his victory was most probably due to the fact that he was a man. Though Madge averred that they would have had another quarter of a mile of gurgling brook, and at least two west winds sighing through their redwoods, had Walt properly devoted his energies to song transmutation, and left Wolf alone to exercise a natural taste and an unbiased judgment. "'It's about time I heard from those triolets,' Walt said." After a silence of five minutes, during which they had swung steadily down the trail, there'll be a check at the post office, I know, and we'll transmute it into beautiful buckwheat flour, a gallon of maple syrup, and a new pair of overshoes for you. And into beautiful milk from Mrs. Johnson's beautiful cow, Madge added. Tomorrow's the first of the month, you know. Walt scowled unconsciously, then his face brightened, and he clapped his hand to his breast pocket. Never mind, I have here a nice, beautiful new cow, the best milker in California. When did you write it? She demanded eagerly, then reproachfully, and you never showed it to me. I saved it to read it to you on the way to the post office in a spot remarkably like this one, he answered, indicating with a wave of his hand a dry log on which to sit. A tiny stream flowed out of a dense fern break, slipped down the mossy-lipped stone, and ran across the path at their feet. From the valley arose the mellow song of meadowlarks, while about them, in and out, through sunshine and shadow, fluttered great yellow butterflies. Up from below came another sound that broke in upon Walt reading softly from his manuscript. It was a crunch of heavy feet, punctuated now and again by the clattering of a displaced stone. As Walt finished and looked to his wife for approval, A man came into view around the turn of the trail. He was bareheaded and sweaty. With a handkerchief in one hand, he mopped his face, while in the other hand he carried a new hat and a wilted, starched collar which he had removed from his neck. He was a well-built man, and his muscles seemed on the point of bursting out of the painfully new and ready-made black clothes he wore. Warm day, Walt greeted him. Walt believed in country democracy and never missed an opportunity to practice it. The man paused and nodded. I guess I ain't yet much used to the warm, he vouchsafed half-apologetically. I'm more accustomed to zero weather. 
You don't find any of that in this country, Walt laughed. Should say not, the man answered, and I ain't here a-looking for it neither. I'm trying to find my sister. Maybe you know where she lives. Her name's Johnson, Mrs. William Johnson. You're not her Klondike brother, Madge cried, her eyes bright with interest. About whom we've heard so much? Yes'm, that's me, he answered modestly. My name's Miller, Skiff Miller. I just thought I'd surprise her. You are on the right track, then, only you've come by the footpath. Madge stood up to direct him, pointing up to the canyon at a quarter of a mile. You see that blasted redwood? Take the little trail turning off to the right. It's the shortcut to her house. You can't miss it. Yes'm, thank you, ma'am, he said. He made tentative efforts to go, but seemed awkwardly rooted to the spot. He was gazing at her with an open admiration of which he was quite unconscious and which was drowning along with him in the rising sea of embarrassment in which he floundered. We'd like to hear you tell about the Klondike, Madge said. Mayn't we come over some day while you're at your sister's? Or better yet, won't you come over and have dinner with us? Yes, um, thank you, ma'am, he mumbled mechanically. Then he caught himself up and added, I ain't stopping long. I gotta be pulling north again. I go out on tonight's train. You see, I've got a mail contract with the government. When Madge had said that it was too bad, he made another futile effort to go. But he could not take his eyes from her face. He forgot his embarrassment in his admiration, and it was her turn to flush and feel uncomfortable. It was at this juncture, when Walt had decided it was time for him to be saying something to relieve the strain, that Wolf, who had been away nosing through the brush, trotted wolf-like into view. Skiff Miller's abstraction disappeared. The pretty woman before him passed out of his field of vision. He had eyes only for the dog, and a great wonder came into his face. Well, I'll be hanged, he enunciated slowly and solemnly. He sat down ponderingly on the log, leaving Madge standing. At the sound of his voice, Wolf's ears had flattened down. Then his mouth had opened into a laugh. He trotted slowly up to the stranger and first smelled his hands, then licked them with his tongue. Skiff Miller patted the dog's head and slowly and solemnly repeated, Well, I'll be hanged. Excuse me, ma'am, he said the next moment. I was just surprised some, that was all. We're surprised too, she answered lightly. We never saw Wolf make up to a stranger before. Is that what you call him, Wolf? the man asked. Madge nodded. But I can't understand his friendliness toward you unless it's because you're from the Klondike. He's a Klondike dog, you know. Yes'm, Miller said absently. He lifted one of Wolf's forelegs and examined the footpads, pressing them and denting them with his thumb. Kind of soft, he remarked. He ain't been on trail for a long time. I say, Walt broke in. It is remarkable the way he lets you handle him. Skiff Miller arose, no longer awkward with admiration of Madge, and in a sharp business-like manner asked, How long have you had him? But just then the dog, squirming and rubbing against the newcomer's legs, opened his mouth and barked. It was an explosive bark, brief and joyous, but a bark. That's a new one on me, Skiff Miller remarked. Walt and Madge stared at each other. The miracle had happened. Wolf had barked. It's the first time he ever barked, Madge said. First time I ever heard him, too, Miller volunteered. Madge smiled at him. The man was evidently a humorist. Of course, she said, since you have only seen him for five minutes. Skiff Miller looked at her sharply, seeking in her face the guile her words had led him to suspect. I thought you understood, he said slowly. I thought you'd tumbled to it from his making up to me. He's my dog. His name ain't Wolf. It's Brown. Oh, Walt, was Madge's instinctive cry to her husband. Walt was on the defensive at once. How do you know he's your dog, he demanded. Because he is, was the reply. Mere assertion, Walt said sharply. In his slow and pondering way, Skiff Miller looked at him, then asked, with a nod of his head toward Marge. How do you know she's your wife? 
You just say, because she is. And I'll say it's mere assertion. The dog's mine. I bred him and raised him, and I guess I ought to know. Look here, I'll prove it to you. Skiff Miller turned to the dog. Brown! His voice rang out sharply, and at the sound, the dog's ears flattened down as to a caress. Gee! The dog made a swinging turn to the right. Now, mush on! And the dog seized his swing abruptly and started straight ahead, halting obediently at command. I can do it with whistles, Skiff Miller said proudly. He was my lead dog. But you are not going to take him away with you, Madge asked tremulously. The man nodded. Back into that awful Klondike world of suffering? He nodded and added, Oh, it ain't so bad as all that. Look at me. Pretty healthy specimen, ain't I? But the dogs, the terrible hardship, the heartbreaking toil, the starvation, the frost. Oh, I've read about it, and I know. I nearly ate him once over on Little Fish River, Miller volunteered grimly. If I hadn't got a moose that day, was all that saved him. I'd have died first, Madge cried. Things is different down here, Miller explained. You don't have to eat dogs. You think different just about the time you're all in. You've never been all in, so you don't know anything about it. That's the very point, she argued warmly. Dogs are not eaten in California. Why not leave him here? He is happy. He'll never want for food. You know that. He'll never suffer from cold and hardship. Here all is softness and gentleness. Neither the human nor nature is savage. He will never know a whiplash again. And as for the weather, why, it never snows here. But it's all fired hot in summer, begging your pardon, Skiff Miller laughed. But you do not answer, Madge continued passionately. What have you to offer him in that Northland life? Grub, when I've got it, and that's most of the time, came the answer. And the rest of the time? No grub. And the work? Yes, plenty of work. Miller blurted out impatiently, work without end, and famine and frost and all the rest of the miseries, that's what he'll get when he comes with me. But he likes it. He's used to it. He knows that life. He was born to it and brought up to it. And you don't know anything about it. You don't know what you're talking about. That's where the dog belongs, and that's where he'll be happiest. The dog doesn't go, Walt announced in a determined voice, so there's no need of further discussion. What's that? Skiff Miller demanded, big brows lowering and an obstinate flush of blood reddening his forehead. I said the dog doesn't go, and that settles it. I don't believe he's your dog. You may have seen him sometime. You may even sometime have driven him for his owner. But his obeying the ordinary driving commands of the Alaskan Trail is no demonstration that he's yours. Any dog in Alaska would obey you as he obeyed. Besides, he is undoubtedly a valuable dog, as dogs go in Alaska, and that is sufficient explanation of your desire to get possession of him. Anyway, you've got to prove property. Skiff Miller, cool and collected, the obstinate flush a trifle deeper on his forehead, his huge muscles bulging under the black cloth of his coat, carefully looked the poet up and down, as though measuring the strength of his slenderness. The Klondiker's face took on a contemptuous expression as he said finally, I reckon there's nothing in sight to prevent me taking the dog right here and now. Walt's face reddened, and the striking muscles of his arms and shoulders seemed to stiffen and grow tense. His wife fluttered apprehensively into the breach. Maybe Mr. Miller is right, she said. I'm afraid that he is. Wolf does seem to know him, and certainly he answers to the name of Brown. He made friends with him instantly, and you know that's something he never did with anybody before. Besides, look at the way he barked. He was bursting with joy. Joy over what? Without doubt at finding Mr. Miller. Walt's striking muscles relaxed, and his shoulders seemed to droop with hopelessness. I guess you're right, Marge, he said. Wolf isn't wolf, but brown, and he must belong to Mr. Miller. Perhaps Mr. Miller will sell him, she suggested. We can buy him. Skiff Miller shook his head. 
no longer belligerent, but kindly, quick to be generous in response to generousness. I had five dogs, he said, casting him out for the easiest way to temper his refusal. He was the leader. They was the crack team of Alaska. Nothing could touch him. In 1898, I refused $5,000 for the bunch. Dogs was high then anyway, but that wasn't what made the fancy price. It was the team itself. Brown was the best in the team. That winter, I refused 1200 for him. I didn't sell him then, and I ain't a-selling him now. Besides, I think a mighty lot of that dog. I've been looking for him for three years. It made me fair sick when I found he'd been stole. Not the value of him, but the, well, uh, I liked him, so that's all. I couldn't believe my eyes when I seen him just now. I thought I was dreaming. It was too good to be true. Why, I was his nurse. I put him to bed, snug every night. His mother died, and I brought him up on condensed milk at $2 a can when I couldn't afford it in my own coffee. He never knew any mother but me. He used to suck my finger regular, the darn little pup, that finger right there. And Skiff Miller, too, overwrought for speech, held up a forefinger for them to see. That very finger, he managed to articulate, as though it somehow clinched the proof of ownership and the bond of affection. He was still gazing at his extended finger when Madge began to speak. But the dog, she said, you haven't considered the dog. Skiff Miller looked puzzled. Have you thought about him? She asked. Don't know what you're driving at, was the response. Maybe the dog has some choice in the matter, Madge went on. Maybe he has his likes and desires. You have not considered him. You give him no choice. It has never entered your mind that possibly he might prefer California to Alaska. You consider only what you like. You do with him as you would a sack of potatoes or a bale of hay. This was a new way of looking at it, and Miller was visibly impressed as he debated it in his mind. Madge took advantage of, indi of his indecision. If you really love him, what would be happiness to him would be your happiness also, she urged. Skiff Miller continued to debate with himself, and Madge stole a glance of exultation to her husband, who looked back warm approval. What do you think? the Klondiker suddenly demanded. It was her turn to be puzzled. What do you mean? she asked. Do you think he'd sooner stay in California? She nodded her head with positiveness. I am sure of it. Skiff Miller again debated with himself, though this time aloud, at the same time running his gaze in a judicial way over the mooted animal. He was a good worker. He's done a heap of work for me. He never loafed on me, and he was a Joe Dandy at hammering a raw team into shape. He's got a head on him. He can do everything but talk. He knows what you say to him. Look at him now. He knows we're talking about him. The dog was lying at Skiff Miller's feet, head close down on paws, ears erect and listening, and eyes that were quick and eager to follow the sound of speech as it fell from the lips of first one and then the other. And there's a lot of work in him yet. He's good for years to come, and I do like him. Once or twice after that, Skiff Miller opened his mouth and closed it again without speaking. Finally, he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Your remarks, ma'am, has some weight in them. The dog's worked hard, and maybe he's earned a soft berth and has got a right to choose. Anyway, we'll leave it up to him. Whatever he says, goes. You people stay right here, setting down. I'll say goodbye and walk off casual-like. If he wants to stay, he can stay. If he wants to come with me, let him come. I won't call him to come, and you don't call him to come back. He looked with sudden suspicion at Madge and added, Only you must play fair. No persuading after my back has turned. We'll play fair, Madge began, but Skiff Miller broke in on her assurances. I know the ways of women, he announced. Their hearts is soft. When their hearts is touched, they're likely to stack the cards, look at the bottom of the deck, and lie. Begging your pardon, ma'am. I'm only discoursing about women in general. I don't know how to thank you, Marge quavered. I don't see as you've got any call to thank me, he replied. Brown ain't decided yet. Now you won't mind if I go away slow. 
It's no more'n fair, seeing I'll be out of sight inside a hundred yards. Madge agreed and added, and I promise you faithfully that we won't do anything to influence him. Well then, I might as well be getting along, Skiff Miller said in the ordinary tones of one departing. At this change in his voice, Wolf lifted his head quickly, and still more quickly got to his feet when the man and woman shook hands. He sprang up on his hind legs, resting his forepaws on her hip, and at the same time licking Skiff Miller's hand. When the latter shook hands with Walt, Wolf repeated his act, resting his weight on Walt and licking both men's hands. It ain't no picnic, I can tell you that, were the Klondiker's last words as he turned and went slowly up the trail. For the distance of twenty feet, Wolf watched him go, himself all eagerness and expectancy, as though waiting for the man to turn and retrace his steps. Then, with a quick, low whine, Wolf sprang after him, overtook him, caught his hand between his teeth with reluctant tenderness, and strove gently to make him pause. Failing in this, Wolf raced back to where Walt Irvine sat, catching his coat sleeve in his teeth and trying vainly to drag him after the retreating man. Wolf's perturbation began to wax. He desired ubiquity. He wanted to be in two places at the same time with the old master and the new, and steadily the distance between them was increasing. He sprang about excitedly, making short, nervous leaps and twists, now toward one, now toward the other, in painful indecision, not knowing his own mind, desiring both and unable to choose, uttering quick, sharp whines and beginning to pant. He sat down abruptly on his haunches, thrusting his nose upward, the mouth opening and closing with jerking movements, each time opening wider. These jerking movements were in unison with the recurrent spasms that attacked the throat, each spasm severer and more intense than the preceding one. And in accord with jerks and spasms, the larynx began to vibrate, at first silently, accompanied by the rush of air expelled from the lungs, then sounding a low, deep note, the lowest in the register of the human ear. All this was the nervous and muscular preliminary to howling. But just as the howl was on the verge of bursting from the full throat, the wide-open mouth was closed, the paroxysm ceased, and he looked long and steadily at the retreating man. Suddenly, Wolf turned his head and over his shoulder just as steadily regarded Walt. The appeal was unanswered. Not a word, nor a sign did the dog receive. No suggestion and no clue as to what his conduct should be. A glance ahead to where the old master was nearing the curve of the trail excited him again. He sprang to his feet with a whine and then, struck by a new idea, turned his attention to Madge. Hitherto, he had ignored her. But now, both masters failing him, she alone was left. He went over to her and snuggled his head in her lap, nudging her arm with his nose, an old trick of his when begging for favors. He backed away from her and began writhing and twisting playfully, curveting and prancing, half-rearing and striking his forepaws to the earth, struggling with all his body, from the wheedling eyes and flattening ears to the wagging tail, to express the thought that was in him and that was denied him utterance. This, too, he soon abandoned. He was depressed by the coldness of these humans who had never been cold before. No response could he draw from them. No help could he get. They did not consider him. They were as dead. He turned and silently gazed after the old master. Skiff Miller was rounding the curve. In a moment, he would be gone from view. Yet he never turned his head, plodding straight onward, slowly and methodically, as though possessed of no interest in what was occurring behind his back. And in this fashion, he went out of view. Wolf waited for him to reappear. He waited a long minute, silently, quietly, without movement, as though turned to stone, withal stone quick with eagerness and desire. He barked once and waited. Then he turned and trotted back to Walt Irvine. He sniffed his hand and dropped down heavily at his feet, watching the trail where it curved emptily from view. The tiny stream slipping down the mossy-lipped stone seemed suddenly to increase the volume of its gurgling noise. Save for the meadowlarks, there was no other sound. 
The great yellow butterflies drifted silently through the sunshine and lost themselves in the drowsy shadows. Madge gazed triumphantly at her husband. A few minutes later, Wolf got upon his feet. Decision and deliberation marked his movements. He did not glance at the man and woman. His eyes were fixed up the trail. He had made up his mind. They knew it, and they knew, so far as they were concerned, that the ordeal had just begun. He broke into a trot, and Madge's lips pursed, forming an avenue for the caressing sound that it was the will of her to send forth. But the caressing sound was not made. She was impelled to look at her husband, and she saw the sternness with which he watched her. The pursed lips relaxed, and she sighed inaudibly. Wolf's trot broke into a run. Wider and wider were the leaps he made. Not once did he turn his head, his wolf's brush standing out straight behind him. He cut sharply across the curve of the trail and was gone. Steve read the beginning of Chapter 6 of Winds of Wyoming in Podcast 34, and I'll read the conclusion of that chapter, but I'll back up a paragraph or two just uh, for review. Kate stepped toward the barn, fists clenched. She'd come to fulfill an internship, not... Oh, she slid back into the shadows. They'd never believe her, just like the waitress at the restaurant. They didn't know her, but they thought they'd figure her out. They'd never know how wrong they were. She broke into a run on the dark footpath. Halfway to her cabin, she tripped. Sprawled across the rocky trail with the wind knocked out of her lungs, she lay motionless, spread-eagle in the dirt and the pine needles, until she could breathe again. She lifted her head to spit out a pebble, groaning with the effort. And then she saw a circle of light bob toward her. Before she could sit up, the light caught her, and someone was kneeling beside her. You hurt? The voice was masculine. I'm fine. Just tripped. That's all. He swept the beam across her body. You're bleeding. If you can hang on a minute, I'll get the first aid kit. Her knees and palms were already burning, but she didn't need a man to take care of her. Kate pushed to a sitting position. No, thanks. I just got a few scrapes, nothing serious. You sure? The kit's hanging on the barn wall, right around the corner. After what she'd heard, she didn't want anything to do with the barn. I'll be fine. He held out his hand, which smelled of gasoline, and aimed the flashlight beam at the ground. Here, I'll help you up. Kate held out her palm under the light and saw blood and dirt. I don't want to smear blood on you. I've had worse stuff than blood smeared on me, but that looks painful. Here, I'll grab a hold of your upper arm. She let him pull her upright, though the pain nearly took her breath away. Think you can walk? Uh Uh-huh. She tasted blood on her lip. He took her arm and with his free hand aimed the flashlight beam at the trail. Where are you headed? Tempted to jerk away, Kate reminded herself that she wasn't being manhandled by a correctional officer. She shivered, hating the involuntary sign of weakness. The Blue Jay. It's not far. He took off his jacket and laid it across her shoulders. She looked at him, wishing she could see his face more clearly. But the blood. It'll wash. I get all kinds of crud on this thing, and it always washes out. Warm and soft against her skin, the flannel-lined jacket smelled like soap mixed with hay and horses, and she didn't know what else, maybe the fresh aroma of clean, outdoor air, something she hadn't experienced often in Pittsburgh. He took her arm again, and they began to walk. Though her scraped knees rebelled at each step, she tried not to shuffle. Then, almost as soon as they started, he stopped. Kate stumbled. His grasp tightened. Sorry, I just remembered I owe you an apology. What was he talking about? Oh. She tensed and stepped to the side. She should have known he was one of the guys who mocked her in the barn. He dropped his hand. I was a jerk this afternoon. This afternoon? She tilted her head. Who was he? Not Cyrus or Fletcher. She could see the outline of his face and hat in the starlight, but that was all. And smell his aftershave. Yeah, when you drove up to the office, that was me on the porch. I just had words with my mom, and I wasn't feeling very friendly. I apologize for being rude. Oh, yes. The grouchy guy with the friendly collie. But at least he could say he was sorry. She hadn't met many men capable of regret. Thank you. Is Laura Duncan your mother? 
Yep, I need to apologize to her, too. He took her arm again. She didn't resist. Within minutes, they were at the Blue Jay. Kate was surprised by the disappointment she felt, knowing they'd soon part ways. He helped her up the single step to the stoop. Kate was glad she'd thought to flip on the porch light before she left the cabin. He opened the door for her and said, Have a good night. He touched his hat brim. See you around the ranch. He hesitated. Sorry, I didn't catch your name. Kate handed him his coat. My name is Kate. Thank you for helping me and for lending me your jacket. She laughed. I don't know your name. Mike. Mike Duncan. He turned to go, but stopped, a half-grin creasing his face. Welcome to Wyoming and the Whispering Pines. Call the house if you need anything, band-aids or whatever. Thank you. She shivered all over and had started to shiver again, but she stayed to watch him leave before stepping inside the cabin. She ran her fingers across the bumpy log wall and felt for the light switch. Finally, she had a place of her own, a place to call home. It wouldn't be long before finding the light switch in every room was second nature. She turned the porch light off and the ceiling light on before closing the door. Hey, little darling, Kate gasped and whirled. Cherry Ramsey sat at her kitchen table, a whiskey bottle and a half-filled glass in front of him. Knew you'd be lonesome for me tonight. Kate stared at him. This couldn't be happening. She tightened her grip on the doorknob. He lifted the bottle. Remember our good buddy Jack? He snickered. The three of us will have a fine time. It'll be a sweet threesome, same as old times. His lip curled. Too bad your fridge is empty. With a little Coke, we can make it a foursome. Jack and Coke, and me and you. Kate yanked the door open. Out! He picked up the glass and drained it. Gabrielle, baby, you know what you want. You need Jaron, Jack. How did you find me? Like I've always told you, sweetheart, I have my ways. His dark eyes were as flat and empty as one-way mirrors. You owe me, big time, especially after I caught you whoring around with someone else. His aftershave stabbed at her sinuses. How could she not have smelled him before she saw him? Out! Get out of my cabin! He jumped to his feet and was across the room. In two strides, he grabbed her arm, but she jerked from his grasp. He swore, kicked the door shut, and threw her onto the couch. I'm done being nice. She rolled away from him and grabbed the floor lamp beside the couch, ripping the cord from the wall. Ramsey seized the lamp pole and twisted, but Kate held tight. Someone pounded on the door. Everything okay in there? No! Kate yanked at the pole. Ramsey released his hold and she fell onto the couch. He whipped a gun from beneath his jacket flap and dashed for the bathroom, slamming the door behind him. Mike burst into the cabin. He glanced at Kate, who was on her feet again, then at the bathroom door. They heard a bolt being shoved into place. Mike charged across the room, his boots hammering the floorboard. Kate right behind him. Open up, he rattled the doorknob. At the sound of breaking glass, he spun on his heels and hurried out the front door. Kate ran to the doorway, calling, He has a gun! The only response was the thump of running feet receding to silence. She locked the door and fell onto the couch, staring at Ramsey's empty glass. He'd contaminated her cabin before she'd spent a single night in it. She had to find Uncle Dean's hunting knife before she went to bed, or some form of protection. A loud rap sounded on the door. She sprang to her feet, clenching the lamp like a battering ram. Who is it? It's been a while since we've heard from Eugene Shea, who has written a lot of poems. And I'm going to read first one he wrote called Of Fleeting Fame. Birds in passing leave no trail, nor ships that sail the bounding main. Oh, when the blows today a gale is lost tonight in gentle rain. Angry waves by tempest tossed by tomorrow may a mirror make. Though hard you stir a water pail, in a moment will its level take. He took the country by storm, his name on every lip. His opinions made headlines, TV reported every quip. Name and fame and neon glowed across an applauding nation. Wealth and praise upon him stowed the darling of his generation. 
But in some musty archive, a few centuries have gone by. They came upon his name again and asked, Who was this guy? This is The Hills of Home. You may travel world round and meet the Pope of Rome and view the Taj Mahal and kiss the Blarney Stone, sip the wines of Tuscany, dine atop the Eiffel Tower, swim the racing Hellespont, hear Big Ben strike the hour, rope a wily kangaroo and track the polar bear, catch a record marlin too, put braids in Pele's hair. But when you shake the Gobi desk from your travel haversack and look about for better lands, well, try a homeward tack. Though you travel far and wide and forever you may roam, a finer place is hard to find than old familiar hills of home. And the last one is called The Housekeeper. My friend often said, before he was wed, to keep house, I need a spouse. Though neat as I am, I'm still just a man. I need a wife to keep my house. Then one day to me, he said with glee, the perfect wife I have found. Though meek as a mouse, she keeps her house the most perfect in this town. Well, time does fly, and the months went by with a wife as meek as a mouse. And in the course of their divorce, of course, she kept his house. That is it for this time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.